If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Good company and civilized debate with a premium on fun. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, g'day. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. It's a pleasure to have your company. Uh, You're on the Ross Cameron Show, and we are giving you sound and pictures tonight. A special bonus. Uh, One um, tends with increasing reluctance to look in the mirror as you pass perhaps the age of 40 or so. Um, And to remind ourselves that uh, appearances are not the most important thing. Uh, I'm sorry I missed you last week. It was indeed uh, an error on uh, my part, I should say, rather than TNT, as we're trying to do, trying to do more with less, trying to give you pictures as well. We couldn't quite get all the threads together, but uh, happy to be here with you tonight. And indeed, one of our listeners um, did lodge a uh, kind of a sweet complaint, in a way, uh, of uh, dissatisfaction that I wasn't present at my post. And uh, she demanded through the TNT comments and feedback section, which you're welcome to go and register your thoughts on, um, on the website, tntradio.live, she said she wanted me to open the show this week with some ancient history. So that is uh, a challenge to which I am happy to rise. Indeed, um, seated uh, behind me on a pedestal is a um, statuette of Marcus Aurelius, or uh, as he was known later in life, Marcus Aurelius Antonius Augustus. Uh, indeed, some thought that he deserved the additional title of Africanus, but uh, nonetheless, known to us as Marcus Aurelius. And I just wanted to, uh, I note that Marcus came up in dispatches in correspondence on the pages of the Australian newspaper recently. Uh, in an interview that took place between uh, the Australian's Troy Bramston and the retiring sort of emeritus professor of Roman history, Mary Beard, who I think uh, formerly hung out around Cambridge or one of those uh, once exalted seats of learning in the United Kingdom, uh, sadly have uh, gone the way of most institutions into a a very regrettable uh, morass and pit of woke correctness and thought policing rather than any kind of genuine inquiry. Nonetheless, um, Bramston put the uh, question to Mary Beard, and I'll give it to the quote from the Australian newspaper. Many people come to the Roman emperors through Marcus Aurelius and his meditations but you are not such a fan. Tell me why, because there will be people reading The Weekend Australian who will be very upset with you about this. I'm raising my hand. Um, Indeed, uh, if you are a true stoic, you won't be upset uh, with it at all. It will 
register. It will enter your consciousness. You may consider and reflect on it, but it will not disturb you in any way uh, to see such a um, superficial uh, opinion from an alleged eminent uh, historian. But we ought to give Mary her a fair go, and we can happily give you the direct quote. Mary Bid says, yes, I know. I think Marcus Aurelius is an interesting figure, but I'm no admirer of the meditations. I thought there were some clever observations about the nature of palace life. I thought mostly, however, they are perfectly decent, but rather second rank stoic platitudes saying things like, and this isn't a direct quote, when you get up in the morning, make sure you've always got a plan for the day. <laughs> well, um, that is uh, uh, Her Eminence, uh, Mary Beard's uh, synopsis of uh, Marcus Aurelius and his meditations. Um, uh, Mary Beard is sort of famous for uh, being concerned about the details rather than the grandeur. I would think we could describe her as a feminist uh, historian. Uh, I don't know if I would go so far as to say anti-male, but certainly anti-hero. Uh, she's much more interested in how many dates uh, a Roman uh, citizen consumed than uh, any of the towering figures of Latin literature uh, or indeed any of the great uh, heroes of Latin culture. I suspect that it's probably quite difficult to understand the Latin project if you don't understand that the laurel was granted to the soldier first over the wall. Uh, if you don't understand uh, the greatness in the Latin imagination of um, the founder of Rome, Aenus, or uh, of Lycurgus, or of uh, Brutus, or of uh, Scipio Africanus, or if you don't really get um, Cicero, or indeed um, Julius Caesar, Augustus, then you are unlikely to get uh, Marcus Aurelius. But I want to just acknowledge um, it was Gough Whitlam who said that when you drink from the well, you ought to remember those who built the well. And the person who first introduced me to Marcus Aurelius as a serious sort of subject of amateur study. I nothing is too serious in my studies, but amateur study. So 2002, Bob Carr published Thought Lines, this, uh, this little volume. And interestingly, even though Labor, Labor figure, um, I always had a regard for Bob Carr's mind. And um, he would tend to be found reading uh, classical works in question time, which he found rather boring. Um, but when you go to thought lines, you find in the uh, table of contents, uh, forward by the Honourable Gough Whitlam, ACQC preface, and then the very first chapter under the title People is Marcus Aurelius, the Inner Citadel. And I thought... In uh, following the Gough Whitlam admonition to remember those who built the world, the person who introduced me, these were my first, I suppose, serious um, thoughts on Marcus Aurelius in the words of Bob Carr. Marcus Aurelius, the inner citadel. I'm going to give you two 
paragraphs. Begin each day, advises the emperor, by telling yourself, today I shall be meeting with interference, ingratitude, insolence, disloyalty, ill will, and selfishness. But our enemies, he reminds us, are part of the universe, part of the whole. And the role of the wise man is to, quote, accept without resentment whatever may befall, to be serene, to be simple. With such reflections, we enter the mind, the inner citadel of Marcus Aurelius, a second century philosopher king who waged unceasing war to hold together an empire that stretched from Spain to Armenia and found time in his tent at night to set down the rules of life. There is no document like it. It is as if Julius Caesar had left us a day book of mordant reflections, not just a propagandist's account of how he conquered Gaul. It's as if Charlemagne or Hannibal or Napoleon had set down his views on life and death and somehow preserved them in a monastery library to be salvaged in our time. The meditations are a unique self-exploration of the soul of a Roman emperor, the personal devotions of a pre-Christian. They sum up the sweet melancholy of late antiquity. A philosopher might believe oblivion will overtake us all, that there is no afterlife. But for Aurelius, anything God willed must be just. And in the face of the void, the only answer was to perform good works in the public service. So that was my introduction. Thank you, uh, Bob Carr, one of the uh, longest serving premiers of New South Wales. Um, indeed, you know, Mary Beard couldn't even bother uh, to get the quote right. She says the quote, you know, when you get up in the morning, make sure you always got a plan for the day. Uh, Bob Carr rightly uh, gets the quote uh, correct. And I'm going to give you the whole quote, which I think, uh, you know, um, uh, evidences the insight. And let's remember that this was not a book written for publication. This is a book with no title. Uh, indeed, uh, it's early uh, versions were more often described as to myself. But the full quote, when you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, the people I deal with today will be maddening, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. They are like this because they cannot tell good from evil. And so the emperor is going into bat uh, for those with frailties, with defects. Um, he continues, but I have seen the beauty of good and the ugliness of evil and have recognized that the wrongdoer has a natural, has a nature related to my own, not of the same blood or birth, but the same mind and possessing a share of the divine. And so none of them can hurt me. No one can implicate me in ugliness. 
Now, you know, Mary Beard regards that as a kind of trite, second-rate uh, observation. Um, you know, it, it doesn't strike me in that way. I mean, Marcus is saying when you get out of bed in the morning, set your compass on the understanding uh, that you will encounter uh, difficult, um, ungrateful. Uh, don't go out with the expectation that everything will be beer in, and skittles, that your meetings will be with a sequence of saints. But also understand that you share in their nature, uh, that you are as one with those, even your most vehement critics, as members of the same human race. And we see in the emperor this desire to find common ground, this will, ability to look beyond the immediate, the superficial, the ugliness uh, to the goodness that lies uh, beneath. And so I just say to you, um, as we go into the very first Ross Cameron show uh, with uh, pictures, uh, we are joined uh, on the shelf by, indeed, a little statuette of Marcus Aurelius and Toninus uh, Pius Augustus. Uh, thankfully, um, we are joined by you, my beloved audience. Uh, and if you stick around, we'll be joined by an absolutely fantastic uh, guest, uh, ex-BBC uh, journalist, uh, a woman who likewise, I think, is a reflective uh, person looking for common ground in the human race, uh, a woman interested in philosophy. So stick around. We'll be right back after this break. TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The double standard is out there. It's so obvious. It's so frustrating. Eric Holder gets held in contempt of Congress for defying a congressional subpoena. Nothing happens. Obama's DOJ didn't pursue it. Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro defy a congressional subpoena. Joe Biden's DOJ criminally prosecutes them. Criminally prosecutes them for defying a congressional subpoena. And now we've got congressional subpoenas of Hunter Biden and James Biden, the resident's brother. And guess what? Nothing's going to be done by Merrick Garland, Barack Obama, Joe Biden's DOJ. That's right. I said Barack Obama. Obama's the shadow president. He's not the one pulling the strings. He wasn't pulling the strings in his own administration. You know, Valerie Jarrett was his minder. Where is the Iranian-born Valerie Jarrett these days? Haven't seen or heard much of her. It's because the Democrats are smart. Timothy Shea on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk The human mind is like a computer. No matter how efficient it may be, its reliability is only as great as the information fed into it. That's a campaign promise! Tell us the truth. Tell us the truth. We mandate that the truth be told. You're hearing it. TNT. 
Well, g'day and welcome back. Uh, Ross Cameron here with uh, Gemma Cooper, joining us, I think, from London or perhaps somewhere in the United Kingdom. I had the chance to meet Gemma by kind of accident uh, when we were thrown together, um, not by choice, but as it turned out for me, a very felicitous uh, and enjoyable uh, happenstance. Uh, Gemma is a person who I think when you meet, or certainly in my case, I thought I would like to uh, have more of the influence of Gemma Cooper, hopefully on the Ross Cameron show. So welcome back. Oh, thank you very much indeed, Ross. It's an absolute pleasure to be here because normally through the week I do uh, frantic news roundups on a lot of the UK shows that TNT runs and it's all very news and it's very fast paced and some of the news, as we well know, <laughs> It's extremely depressing and skewed and uh, propaganda, but we, you know, it's our job here at TNT to pull it apart. So my week is very kind of left brain and and very kind of analytical and uh, you know picking apart the kind of lies the mainstream is telling us. So be on to be on TNT on a Sunday, you know, here in the UK, it's Sunday morning. It's nice and relaxed, and to be you know listening to you talk about Marcus Aurelius, who I'm a huge fan of, is uh, is fantastic. So thank you very much for asking me on. <laughs> Well, look, what I would like you to do is before we uh, perhaps get into a bit more of uh, Marcus, um, tell us a little bit about the Gemma story. I mean, I have known uh, you, you sort of were, uh, I guess I would call you almost an exile or a refugee from the BBC. You have a background in broadcasting, but would you mind just starting from the beginning uh, and bringing us up to the current moment of what's happening in your life? Well, I'll keep it as short as I can because I have told this story here on uh, TNT before and I don't want to bore people with the kind of Gemma Cooper show, but it, it, it's it's indicative of where society is going. This hasn't just happened to me. It's happened to hundreds of thousands of people around the planet who uh, spoke out against the madness of the last three and a half years and found themselves promptly cancelled and went off to build a new life. So <clears throat> it doesn't just apply to me. But I've been in the media, the mainstream media is where I had my career. I started when I was 25, many, many, many moons ago uh, as a trainee journalist on a big daily paper here in the UK. This is before the internet. It's the days when, you know, broadsheets and papers had some influence. And uh, I spent four years there in a big paper in the Northeast of England. Then I was headhunted by the BBC um, and I joined the BBC in 1999 and I built a career that was ostensibly from the outside, a very successful one. Uh, I was a reporter, I was a producer. And then in 2007, eight, I got a job as a presenter. I was a, I was a weather presenter. Uh, and then I dovetailed that for a few years of being a weather presenter, then a news presenter while still doing background duties. And until uh, what should we say? 2010, 2011. I was a fully paid up member of the Matrix, Ross. I was a good little cog in the machine. <laughs> I, I was. I was really, you know, I was I was well programmed from a young age and I was a good person and I parroted everything and repeated what I was told to repeat and took a particular stance on the way that life is. And if you'd have tried to tell me there was more to life than that. I would have thought you're ridiculous. You know, if, if anyone had even quoted Marcus Aurelius at me, I would be like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, and headed off to the nearest nightclub and just carried on consuming products that I didn't need. But then in 2010, 2011, I had a huge, huge spiritual download, awakening, 
it's hard to explain to somebody who hasn't gone through it. If you have gone through one of your own, you'll know exactly what I mean. I think it's a bit like childbirth. You can talk about it, but until it happens to you, it's in a very abstract concept. Um, but I had one, something, I had some trauma in my life. I started doing a lot of yoga and meditation. And from that became a huge shift in my perception of myself, of life, of what we're all about. And once you have that happen to you, it's only a matter of time before the outer, before your inner reality shifts. It's only a matter of time before your outer reality comes to match that. So I was becoming increasingly disillusioned after that moment. It was a gradual process of the sloughing away of my ego and my identity. But I started to get disillusioned with lots of areas of my life. I found I didn't want to go out as much. I shifted my friendship groups. I wanted to spend more time in the yoga studio talking about the nature of reality and what we really were with my yoga teachers. I wanted to go on yoga retreats instead of going to music festivals. A lot shifted. And eventually my career started to shift because I used to go in to work, read out headlines of like a, a pile up on the motorway and death and, uh, and tragedy and, 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 and uh, bank collapses. And, you know, I used to think to myself, is this a valid way of making a living anymore? Telling people how awful the world is, dishing up death as entertainment. I started to really question, whereas before, when I was in the matrix, I didn't question any of it. And then, of course, we had the madness of 2020. And I had been going because of my perception shift. I'd started by a series of lovely coincidences and synchronicities, which is how the spiritual path works. I'd started going to a lot of quote unquote alternative conferences and events. And I've been reading a lot of different kind of books. And at these alternative conferences and events, which I've been going to since around 2011, 2012, I'd started hearing people talk about, you know, Agenda 21, Agenda 30, mass vaccinations and all kinds of dystopian things I was hearing about way before it happened. And I used to think to myself, nah, these people are a bit, you know, I mean, I'm into alternative stuff now, but these people are crazy. They need mm -hmm. to get out or they need to get girlfriends. They need to stop talking about this dystopian future. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then 2020 hit and I was like, oh my God, this thing I've been hearing about, this is it. This mm -hmm. is it. Oh my God. I, oh my God. So then I started going, oh my God, if this goes the way these people have been saying, we're doomed. Oh my God. And then I, I was still in the BBC at this point. Then I saw the way the BBC approached this particular narrative. And I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I'd never seen the BBC take a one-sided approach. Even like we had Brexit here in the UK, big, massive, divisive, you know, shall we leave Europe? Shall we stay in Europe? The BBC was so keen to to have both sides of the argument, you know, and we had to go on uh, workshops and training courses about how we balance the editorial. In this, there was no balance. There was no editorial. It was propaganda. Mm. And I thought, oh my God. So I knew a lot of people um, doing, you know, rallies and and freedom marches who I'd been sort of following for a few years. And, and they started doing anti-lockdown. And I was like, I'm going to this because I need to know the other side and I want to find out what's going on. So as a BBC member of staff, I went to some anti-lockdown rallies. I didn't go as a BBC member of staff. I went as myself and I went in my personal private time. I didn't, I'm not on social media. I didn't tell anyone what I was doing, but everything these days is filmed. Uh, turns out that as a BBC presenter, albeit uh, in the small regional department, I was more famous than what I realized. And so the word got back to my bosses. They hauled me in. They were like, you're not allowed to do this. And I was like, look, this is all this is all wrong. You know, that's all wrong, don't you? And I said, look, I know I'm not supposed to go to protests or rallies, but this is really important. And by the way, lots of other people in the newsroom went to the Black Lives Matter rally 
in Bristol, where we're based, and the one where the statue came down, which made headlines. I said, they all went to a protest. And my manager said to me, one of my managers, that's different. They're anti-racist. You're anti-lockdown. And I, mm. just a voice in my head, a voice in my head, which I've heard many times since my awakening, just said, you should leave the BBC, get out. So I decided to leave and it was a very painful process because I was all over the tabloids and my BBC colleagues and made me out to be a terrible person. I'd worked on the BBC for 21 years, had a great career. I'd been to weddings with BBC colleagues, birthday parties. I'd been on holiday with some people from work. You know, I thought I had good friends there, but there were some people that took such exception to what I'd done in my own personal private time. Just going to hear the other side of the argument. I'll hear what other people had to say. Join the great swathes of the British public who pay their license fee and pay BBC wages. There were millions of us, you know, that all felt like that and we weren't being represented. So I left the BBC, but it was a very, very difficult time. It was three years ago now, almost to the day where I had the tabloid press knocking on my door right before Christmas. Are you a conspiracy theorist? Are you anti-lockdown? You know, and it was an awful time. But from tragedy... And, uh, and trauma, which it was a very traumatic time. I left my whole life, uh, comes growth. And it is through the bad times and th that we grow. So, uh, you know, it's been a journey since that point, but, um, and I've worked for lots of alternative news outlets since then. And of course it's brought me to the great TNT, uh, which is definitely without doubt, the best job I've ever had. So, it, you know, the universe works in mysterious ways, ways Ross, and that's my story. I tried okay. to keep it short. <laughs> Very good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Um, so now TNT has the benefit of Gemma, what, five days a week? Do we have Do we have you every business day? Yes, absolutely. And so uh, if my uh, beloved listeners uh, wish to be uh, promiscuous and not devoted only uh, to me alone, I give my consent uh, to tune in to Gemma. Um, so um, interesting, I mean, there's a sense in which, um, you know, the, the, the sisters of fate weaving the tapestry of your life, um, you know, this, this moment came uh, not entirely of your choosing, but in a sense following uh, as a consequence of you exercising your freedom of conscience, uh, belief, your decision to attend uh, the rally was really became a very significant moment. And I suppose, you know, I've been sacked uh, a number of times in my life. I don't say you, I don't necessarily use that word in your case. I mean, you came to a view that you should get out. Um, I was, uh, you know, ha have been uh, punted uh, from a political party, you know, from a media organisation, <laughs> from various joints. And I think it's always better uh, in a way, you're fortunate that you've you've been sacked for what I think of as the best possible reason, uh, because you indeed are attached to reason, uh, whereas your former employer is a hostage to an interest. You know whether we call it a dogma, a cult, uh, the pharmaco, uh, deep state, whatever. Um, and in some respects, that's I think can be a very liberating thing um, to feel that you are now in charge of your own destiny, and you are no longer a hostage to these commitments uh, of the BBC, 
which indeed have nothing to do with their charter, uh, with their duty, uh, even with their obligations as individual human beings to their fellow humans, um, you're now really um, charting your own course. And I'm guessing um, there's a lot to like about that feeling. Uh, not at the time, <laughs> because it was a, a very abrupt departure, but it was my departure. And I must stress, I wasn't fired. I absolutely wasn't fired. Uh, the, they wanted to um, take me to a disciplinary and internal disciplinary and investigation, you know, like so many people who are working for, like, for example, in the National Health Service or in academia who questioned this. I know a lot of people who were disciplined and told to be quiet. Um, I reached a stage in my life where I realized that being true to yourself is the most priceless commodity that you can have. I mean, if you look at the book written by the Australian author, Bonnie Ware, the top five regrets of the dying or top 10 regrets of the dying, the top one is, I wish I'd had the courage to be true to myself and not live the life that everyone expected of me. And I reached that point. I thought I'm in midlife, which is a very, very powerful time. The midlife transition is probably the most powerful time in a human being's life, actually. And I thought I can either carry on the, as I was in the first half or I can make the leap and transition to the second half of my life and be in charge of my own destiny. So it was a very horrible experience at the time because I was escaping an organization which is almost like a cult, you know, because you think a certain way and you behave a certain way. And I think a lot of people in the BBC, and I was one till I had my awakening, are very actually institutionalized, which was why it was so easy for everyone to be parroting the same narrative there and not question it because it's, it's an institution. And uh, so I, when I left, it's like, Although it was my choice to leave, I still had to adapt to a life without the biggest thing in my life, which was my career. You know, I'm not married, I don't have children. I devoted my life, the best years of my life, to that career. And as from the outside, it was a good career. So now it's great, but I was some very tricky times over the last few years where I woke up every morning and thought, what have I done? Mm. What, what have I done? Mm. You know, it's like a, you know, it's, I won't say it's like it's an abusive relationship or anything like that, but it is a bit like a breakup, you know, even if you're the one instigating the divorce, it's still a traumatic time until you get to your new life. And that, mm. so I'm at the beginnings definitely of, of something now I feel extremely liberated. I do feel free, but with freedom comes, you know, uh, responsibility and free, personal freedom is a scary thing because when you're working for an institution, they tell you what to do and you do it. That's it. You don't have to think when you're charting a course of personal freedom, it's exactly what you just said at the top of the show about Marcus Aurelius. You know, every morning you have to think, okay, today's going to be maybe a bit tricky, but it's how I respond to it that counts. And when you're free, you get more days like that than when you're just being told what to do in life. So, yeah, it takes guts, but, you know, the rewards are great. Do you recall, I mean, the, the first point of what uh, people regret on their deathbed by the Australian author you mentioned, but whom I can't uh, recall, uh, is that they wish they had the courage to be themselves and be true to their own beliefs. Uh, what were the other four? Uh, there were, so that's the first one. Bonnie, it's Bonnie Ware. She's the author. Bonnie Ware. Okay. Bonnie Ware, yeah. Uh, so the first one, you're quite right. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life others expected of me. The second one, closely followed by, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. You know, third one is I wish I kept in touch with my friends. Fourth one, I think, is I'd wish I'd let myself be happier. And then I'd need the I'd need the book <laughs> to get to the fifth one. Okay, but they're all great. around those, you know, tenants of, uh, you know, personal integrity, basically. Yeah. 
Yes. Well, if any of our listeners want to give us uh, point number five from Bonnie Ware's book, uh, what's it called, Gemma? Can you remember the title? Uh, I think it's called The Top Ten Regrets of the Dying. That's something like this. Either the top five or the top ten. And it was a bestseller. It's a huge bestseller, wasn't it? Huge. Very good. Um, Well, look, we've touched on um, in our first meeting, um, I recall we had a short discussion about Epictetus, uh, the Greek slave philosopher. Uh, You've expressed, unlike Mary Beard, the so-called expert, uh, you've expressed uh, the layman's love, appreciation for Marcus Aurelius. Uh, You obviously went through a pretty major um, sort of moment in your life you referred to in 2011, which set you on a path of much deeper self-reflection. Uh, who, if we may ask, are the philosophers or thinkers who have most uh, influenced Gemma Cooper? Oh, there are a lot, actually. Um, we could devote a whole show to people that have really influenced Well, let's me. do it. I'm up for it. <laughs> Keep going. I mean, I was very um, influenced by um, Dan Millman, actually. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was uh, an, an Olympic weightlifter who had um, a terrible accident. He crushed both his knees and he wrote a lot of books um, about his teacher who is still debate to this day whether this teacher really did exist or whether he was a composite of lots of people in Dan Millman's life. But he called his teacher Socrates, who allegedly is this man he met at a gas station who was working at a gas station who went on to teach him about life and how to live it and and that philosophy and it was made into a, he wrote a book called Peaceful Warrior and that was made into a film with Nick Nolte as the character of Socrates. And that was one of my earliest kind of things that I came across while I was on my spiritual inquiry. And it really resonated with me because he was a high achiever chasing status. And then he realized it was all a hollow crown. That was where I was. I was a high achiever. I had status and I was beginning to realize it was a hollow crown. So you get the people on your own journey that resonate with you. Um, so he was one of my earliest ones. But I also really love the writer Florence Scovel Shin, who wrote the book, the game of life and how to play it. And she is very much of your thoughts affect your reality. You create your own reality, which is exactly like Marcus Aurelius. You know, you have the power over your thoughts. Realize this and that's where you'll find your strength. That's what he said. These great philosophers and writers, they all touch into a deep truth, which is the nature of reality is not external. It's internal. How you are on the inside will reflect on the outside. People get it the wrong way round. They think, oh, this is happening to me. Oh, everybody's to blame. Oh, it's an awful life. No, go inside. See your inner chaos. Calm that down and your outer reality will shift. So the people who've really influenced me are the people who say, you know, it's the inside first. Look inside yourself. That's where you'll find the answers. Um, So those are two examples. But pretty much all the people that have influenced me say the same thing. You know, if you want to sort your life out, sort yourself out then your life would be okay, you know. But um, And sometimes when life seems to be chaotic and falling apart, it's because you're not a match vibrationally with your external circumstances and the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, is showing you very clearly you're on the wrong path here, whether it's a relationship, a job, uh, a friendship. If it's not working out, it's because you need to look at it and think, is this still for me? So I'm a great believer of inside inquiry, and that's what meditation does. And in years, I was absolutely devoted to meditation. I don't do it so much now. Um, 
and and in that I had some very profound experiences and insights. So yeah, the inner comes first with me. Whereas for years and decades of my life, it was the external I was focused on. I've realized I got it completely wrong. Do you um you know when 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 you well, if we say to Gemma, well, you know, you're happily uh not on your uh, deathbed, uh, but we know you won't avoid it. <laughs> Indeed, uh, we're all on uh, the same trajectory. One of the things that binds us together is our mortality. Um, we don't necessarily like to focus uh, on the Ross Cameron show on uh, regret. Uh, we prefer to focus on what might still be uh, achieved. But I think it's worth um, asking, you know, what do we, what have we learned from the mistakes of our past, the decades we've had so far? So I'm going to ask you, Gemma, to imagine that you are about to take uh, your last breath and to say, you know, what would you have done differently? And because I'm such a nice guy, uh, I'm going to take instructions from the uh, my director to take a short break and allow you to answer that question. When we come back, you're on The Ross Cameron Show. Don't leave now. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. It's for the greater good. Have you noticed how often you've heard that expression? Mostly every time someone's advocating taking your rights away, the greater good. It connotes the old phrase, the common good, right? We're doing this for the common good. And we're gonna, yes, we're taking some of your income, but we're doing it for the common good. Well, that's shifted now to the greater good. Greater for whom? Never seems to be greater for me or for you. Always seems to be greater for them. And who gets to decide? For whom it's greater? Why? Well, they do, of course. Be silly to allow you and me to be able to determine what's in the greater good and for whom. This is the insidious underbelly of the totalitarian governmental impulse. And it's not just here in the United States, it's in Ireland, it's in the EU, it's in Australia and New Zealand. China, they don't even have to bother about it. They do what they're told. That's the entire essence of a totalitarian regime but what's scary is how many democratic regimes want to emulate the totalitarian regimes for the greater good i'll take a hard pass for magainstitute.com this is timothy shea for tnt radio while serving in afghanistan i was hit by sniper fire the fighting was so intense the medevac chopper was barely able to land in the hospital I was given a 5% chance to live. It's a good thing math wasn't my best subject. Today, I visit classrooms and share my story. I talk to kids about dealing with life's struggles. I tell them, with a little help and a lot of work, that you can overcome any challenge. DAV helps veterans like Adam get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. I know that some struggles are big and some are small but they're all struggles, and you have to learn to get through them. With support from DAV, more veterans like me can live their best life. And as a new father, I have one more reason to keep on keeping on. My victory is being there for the next generation. Adam Alexander, 
May your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. The issues that matter to you and questioning the facts. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. You're with Ross Cameron and Gemma Cooper. We put Gemma on the spot. She's usually the one asking the questions on her uh, we- weekday show on TNT, but she's answering them today. We've asked her, Gemma, your deathbed advice uh, to the listeners uh, to the Ross Cameron show. Take it away. Well, you asked me if I'd have any regrets of my own on uh, on my deathbed, and I think the the really the only regret I would have because my awakening it comes from within you. Awakening comes from within. It doesn't come because somebody tells you to wake up. You know, if only it was that easy. Your awakening comes from your higher self. It comes from your soul. You know, and it breaks through the ego. So my only regret is that my awakening didn't happen sooner because mm. I was forty in my forties before I had my awakening, and I look back at the person I was, very ensconced in my ego, very much a matrix agent, a matrix player, and I treated people not very nicely when I was in that state. I was very egoic. It was all about me, yeah, not in a good way. Um, and I, I wasn't very kind to certain people in my life um, because I thought I, I knew best and I was right all the time. Um, and so my only regret is the awakening didn't happen sooner. But everything in divine timing, when you do have your awakening, it happens at exactly the right point for you. Um, and then you go on and live your life accordingly. So that would be my only regret, really. Okay, very good. Well, we've enjoyed having you. Uh, we hope it'll be the first of many uh, cameo appearances. Uh, we're going to leave you to what I understand is a hike, possibly to the beach to get some sunlight and fresh air. So go with our blessing. Enjoy your Sunday and thanks for your company. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it, Ross. Have a good evening there in Australia. I'm off. Yeah, I'm off to the beach. Get some sea air in my little lungs. But thank you very much for this opportunity. It's been lovely. It's a pleasure. All right, go well. <laughs> well, um, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, our next guest is already warming the seat in the green room. I think I would describe him as a mate of mine. Uh, he's someone for whom I have a high regard on a number of levels, but primarily because he's an Australian who is not going to die wishing that he had lived his own life. Uh, rather than a life dictated to him by someone else. Uh, he's a lecturer in entrepreneurship, and he is building what I would call the sort of uh, sustainable, independent uh, family model. He has made a very deliberate decision uh, to create his own uh, world, and indeed was invited most recently to quite a uh, eminent collection of thinkers, uh, scholars, thought leaders um, on science and freedom, in which his subject matter was primarily uh, homeschooling, and uh, in, in a matter in which he is uh, as an educator in a major public institution, but also the leader of a homeschooling enterprise with his wife at home, which has had some fairly, I think, impressive results. Mark Hornshaw is also the vice president of the newly named Libertarian Party, formerly Liberal Democrats of New South Wales. Mark Hornshaw, welcome to the Ross Cameron Show. G'day, Ross. Thanks very much for having me. 
So um, tell us what uh, is a typical Sunday uh, for Mark Hornshaw. I assume you're one of those who would tick the census box as a Christian and church attender. I could be wrong, maybe presumptuous, but tell us about your day so far. Well, Ross, you're right about me being a Christian and a churchgoer, but wrong about me filling in census forms. I don't know what those are. <laughs> I'm happy for any private market researcher to pay me for my opinions, but I don't like being forced to give them. Uh, and so, um, but yes, so a typical Sunday, yes, we do. Um, we're, we're, we believe in Jesus and we're Christians, except not today. Well, we still believe in Jesus, but today we didn't go to church. It, we're having our family Christmas do because, you know, the, the 25th of January, it's hard to get uh, everybody together sometimes, as I'm sure you would know when your kids grow up a bit. We've just had um, our oldest two marry this year, and we've got um, two grandkids on the way. So we're um, expecting the first in January. Well, and, that's, um, well, that's... Yeah, and then, and then another one by February or maybe March. So uh, there we go. Well, that's absolutely outstanding. It's seldom, uh, having produced six children myself, uh, and those, uh, my 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 mother is grandmother to I think now twenty six. Um, I usually I usually expect to be able to outperform my guests on fertility, but I think you're setting a pretty <laughs> hot pace. Um, <laughs> Tell us, uh, you spoke recently. I'm pretty sure it was at the, um, what was it called? The, uh, was it Australian Australia Science and Freedom? Science and Freedom. Um, you gave a pretty startling thesis. I mean, I was Australian Australia Science and Freedom. Science and Freedom. Um, you gave a pretty startling thesis. I mean, I recall uh, your basic argument is that leaving a child in an Australian school is is approaching not just uh, neglect or reckless indifference, but it's approaching almost abuse. Uh, but I don't wish to put words into your mouth. Um we have uh, been discussing Marcus Aurelius, uh, whom in the meditations, in the very first chapter, uh, gives thanks to his grandfather. Marcus's father died when he was only three years old, but his grandfather largely raised him and he gives thanks to his grandfather for preserving him uh, from a school education. And you would say, I think, that the very word school is an indication of the defect of the educational model. But I'd love you to give our audience the thesis you gave to Australians for Science and Freedom. Yeah, we, we don't really use the term homeschooling because we, we don't want school in our home. We don't want it anywhere near us. Like I think schooling is damaging, like you say. To, to be schooled... Um, means to be to be molded and shaped. It doesn't mean to be educated. Um, you everybody's responsible really for their own education, and anything anyone's really learned, they've wanted to learn and they've done it under their own initiative. But but schooling 
really takes away that initiative. It institutionalizes young people and says, no, no, education is just you sit there and it's a thing that's done to you. You kind of just get on this escalator and you're on the primary school escalator and you hop off onto the high school escalator and then you hop off onto, don't worry, we'll explain later. And you and children are taught to think, I just have to turn up every day and I have to just ask permission. May I go to the bathroom? What's it time for now? English is finished. It's time for maths. Okay, I'll put away that book. And you're just sort of, um, it takes away the, the, both the love of learning and any initiative. And so schooling kind of is really anti-educational, in, in my opinion. Uh, it's also anti-family because, of course, it's really designed in the sort of the late 1800s in the Prussian system for creating soldiers. And then, of course, was adopted by the progressives in uh, America and in, and in um, Britain and, and Australia for really producing good statists, for producing, um, you know, good progressive um, worshippers of the state. And so we don't want... Um... Now, of course, uh, of course, I know that we need places to send kids to. Um, and so I'm not trying to say that everything must be done in the home. Um, I'd like there to be a plethora of places that kids can go, like libraries and museums and movie cinemas and um, places. You know, in those institutions, you don't have behavioural problems usually, do you? People aren't mucking up in the museum or the movie cinema or at the fun park. Why not? Because they've chosen to be there. They've paid their money. And if they muck up, they're going to get kicked out. They don't want to get kicked out. And so um, those are voluntary. And when you're voluntarily there, you want to get your, your value for money. You want to learn. And if you are better off doing something else, then do something else. You can't actually just force learning onto somebody. You can force schooling, but um, that's, that's really um, kind of the opposite of instilling a love of learning. Okay, well, tell us about your, we'll start with your own education and then I'd like to go to the education of your children. Uh, tell us about, you know, Mark Hornshaw's education. I presume it was a pretty orthodox school yes. education. Yes, it was pretty typical. I went to a public high school. I won the maths prize. I got my name in the newspaper that year when they still used to do that. <laughs> um, so many students, um, and and then what? And then you just pick a university course based on the marks that you get. Yeah. What, what what do you have enough marks to get into? And you do that with no actual idea of what the, that thing even is, you know. And so you you're suddenly in this world where you're responsible for your own life and your own choices you realise suddenly that this escalator system doesn't exist. You've got out, you know, the Grace Brothers, ex, you know, the, the whatever it is, you know, the, the traditional inner city um, department store where the escalators just zigzag up and seemingly forever, you know. But you realise that that's, that system doesn't exist, that you've got to pick a direction and start walking in it. And all of a sudden you're in the, the, the big world and so many students, I teach at university nowadays, and so many students 
are completely lost for at least a year. In fact, really, university is a, a race as to who can de-school themselves. As soon as they do, they start to thrive at university. But so many students just flounder for at least a year or two because now all of a sudden the, the bell doesn't ring, the teacher doesn't tell you what to do, the teacher doesn't check your homework, you're responsible now. Um, and so I was, you know, I, I think that's pretty typical too, right? Um, so you won the maths prize. You must have something, uh, you know, you must have something going on in the grey matter up there. What, what's, what was your parents' family sort of influence in relation to your education? My parents were both teachers. Actually, my um, parents were both big supporters of Jim Cameron. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, you've never <laughs> revealed this important fact to me in the past. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I would have been handing out Jim Cameron, um, um, you know, letterbox dropping when I was a, a wee little young thing. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I think you could hardly go wrong with that beginning in life. I mean, you were destined <laughs> to go on to greater things. Um Look, we've got um, three minutes before we'll have to break for the news, and then I'm actually going to detain you. I'm going to demand in the spirit of Prussian uh, soldierly education that you remain. Um, but give us a little insight. I have seen a little bit of one of your sons. I think I might have seen him on YouTube uh, completing an extraordinary engineering uh, project. But just give us a little bit of description of what the educational project inside the Hornshaw family looks like uh, at, at the moment or over the last few years. So we've got six kids, um, our youngest. Well, basically, they from about 12, home-educated kids are pretty much self-directed completely, 100%. You, you work with them up till about 12. Like, like I, my motto is spend three hours a day on the thing you love and 10 minutes each on everything else. And that three hours a day on the thing you love, you have to love something. Mm -hmm. It's up to you to figure out what that is. Right. And often that three hours turns into six hours. Yes. But, um, so we had one of our kids um, was into rock climbing and he would train every day and built a home rock climbing wall that might be with a video that you saw he had a youtube channel where he'd demonstrate what he did yeah that was it and he trained in rock climbing well he pushed hard into that and he ended up multiple time national champion for his age and and at 15 was in the olympic trials for the um the previous one the tokyo olympics at age 15 not in the olympics but in the, the top eight in australia trying out for it um and got a university scholarship at 15. Wow. Um, now, that's with never doing a test, never um, doing any schooling, no HSC, no certificate whatsoever, but demonstrated what he'd already been doing of his own initiative. Um, and um, Okay, well, listen, let's do this. We've got to yeah. go to the news. So hit pause, prepare right. yourself. We're I'll about to return. Minutes. <laughs> Don't right. go anywhere. You're on the Ross Cameron Show. We'll be right back after the news. <laughs> 